Israel and became Christians. It's pretty significant um, in our world because of his massive reach, his massive influence. And yet, he's just one person. People become Christian all the time. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus needs no celebrity endorsement. It's no more true or more relevant to young people now than it was before Kanye West became a Christian. But it is a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity. You don't have to know anything about that guy, but a lot of young people are talking about, isn't it weird? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it interesting that this man could be living in such opposition to God and now claims to be a Christian? It's an incredible turnaround, an extraordinary, what it seems to me, a genuine intervention of God. And now that God has come into his life, God has turned his life around, what does he want to do? He wants to sing about it. But I think it's reasonable to ask ourselves, is it genuine? Only time will tell. And in many ways, Jonah is not dissimilar to Kanye West because God, as we're going to see today, radically intervenes within his life and he produces a song, a psalm. That's what chapter 2 essentially is. That Bible reading that we heard is his song of praise, that God is Lord and that he is Lord of salvation. But just as we might ask with Kanye West, is his songs, is what he sings genuine? We might ask that for Jonah as well. Because in the coming weeks we're going to see that as much as he is caught up in praise in this song here in chapter 2, he doesn't stay there. We'll see that in the coming weeks. You see, many people are simultaneously running from God, but asking God, where are you? I'm running from God, but I want God in my life. But that's not where Jonah is. Jonah's in a worse situation than that. Jonah is running from God, and he can't bear to think anything about him. What Jonah needs is for someone to intervene. He's running towards a cliff. Perhaps some of us know what it's like to run from the loving heart of God. To run and not know how to do anything else. To wonder if there's anyone to catch us. To feel that the momentum is so strong running away from God, you don't even know how you might turn back. What we're going to see is Jonah is restored, rescued in this passage. And he's rescued not by his own devices, his own effort, his own ingenuity, his own spiritual insight. He's rescued by the grace of God, the intervention of God in his life, in the middle and in the depth of his rebellion. And so we're going to see two things, I hope, this morning. We're going to see what is required for Jonah to be restored. And secondly, what effect does that bring? So firstly, what are the requirements of restoration? The first one is the mercy of God. God puts Jonah through a process we see in the book of Jonah. Firstly, we see that God is merciful. Why don't you open up to Jonah chapter 2, 
verse 1. Because here is Jonah, in verse 1, in his distress, he's calling on the Lord. And guess what? The Lord is answering him. Verse 2. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. What we see here is that here as Jonah is running away from God, here as he has gone over the edge of that cliff, here in the depth of his spiritual, spiritual misery, he's crying out to God. He's crying out and remarkably in verses 1 and 2 we see that God is giving him what he didn't give God. He didn't give God his attention. But God has given Jonah not what he deserves, but he's given him his heart. He's given him a heart of mercy. And he answered me, verse 1. Verse 2, he listened to my cry. You see, we might know that God is merciful. But what we so often forget is that he is active in his mercy. Because it's curious there in verse 3, it says, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea. That's curious in verse 3, isn't it? Because if you were reading back in chapter 1, who chucked Jonah into the sea? It was the sailors. But here, as Jonah is in this belly of the whale, it's God who he realises has thrown him. He might be running from God, but that doesn't mean that God is in less control of his life. He might be running away from the presence of God, but God does not less, that God does not attend to him any less. God's mercy triumphs over his rebellion. He's brought low to be brought mercy. And we read that it's a fish, uh, perhaps a big fish like a whale, that swallows him. And automatically we ask ourselves, uh, how can a man survive in a whale for three days? And it's a great question that I don't know the answer to. There are lots of questions that we could ask about this book. But maybe a better question to ask is, why is Jonah there? Because you see in chapter 1, verse 17, just at the end there, just before we hit um, chapter 2, we read that God appointed or provided a fish to swallow Jonah. See, this is the God whom we read created the land and the sea. And so if, jo if God could appoint that fish for Jonah to be swallowed, surely he could sustain Jonah's life in that whale. There's an even better question that we could ask. Because often when we're asking that question, how could this happen, I think the presumption behind that question is, how could this happen? Is it real? I think what is often behind that question is, does God exist? Because if he does, then that question is answered. If the God of the Bible does exist, if he can bring creation into being from nothing, 
then he can bring about the circumstances for which a man can survive in a whale for three days. You see, it's not illogical. It's entirely consistent if it is God who is at work. But sometimes we need to know his mercy, to know him. And so we see why God does this. See, God is at work remarkably in Jonah's life. But what's, I think, most remarkable is not that he survives in a whale for three days. It's the fact that he's rescued at all by the God that he has deserted, by the God that he has run away from. And so what God does is he comes powerfully into Jonah's life there, in the depths of his desperate despair, drowning, as it were, as he is cast into the deep where it it is dark and there is no light. And there he is, captured by the mercy of God. And as he's in that whale, there's a blessedness of disconnection. Um, We live in a very connected world. Our phones beep, our houses beep, uh, it's, it's very hard for us to escape the, almost it feels like sometimes the claws of technology upon us and upon our life. But there, in that whale, there is no range. There is nothing to take his mind away from the reality of what he's done. He's there, isolated, alone. No more running. No more crazy plans. No more worrying. He's completely still before God. And he begins to think. And he begins to understand the reality of what God, what has happened to him and what God has done in his life. He couldn't see that when he was running. He couldn't see that when he was worrying. But he could only see it when he was captured, still, disconnected in the belly of that whale. You see, do you remember the first time we ran from God? It's recorded in the book of Genesis as Adam seeks to escape God's presence and God calls out to Adam, where are you? Which is an odd kind of question because it's not as if God doesn't know where Adam is. When God says, Where are you? He says it not for his benefit. The question is for Adam. The question is for you. The question is for me. See, as God rescues Jonah, he is asking Jonah, where are you, Jonah? Where are you in relationship to me? See, running from the mission that God has called Jonah to is running from God. And we know what that's like, don't we? We know what it is to run from the mission that God gives us. And so we need to pause and ask ourselves the question, when were we just disconnected from our world and still before God? Does it not feel like so often... There are so many voices in our lives, in our heads, 
so many things to do, that that stillness before God is a very precious and rare commodity. Is it not? You know, one of the worst things growing up for me was being sent to my room. I loved being in my room when my brother was there, my mum was there, my dad was there. But you know what I hated? I hated being alone. Sometimes it's a scary thing, isn't it? And often that's the very reason that there are so many distractions in our lives because we don't like, we don't like being alone. We don't like the reality of who we are and so we put other things around us that might take us away from the truth of who we are. But it's in this stillness, it's in this quiet moment that Jonah realises, at least in some sense, who he is and what God has done for him. You see, we can keep running from God, we can keep very busy, we can keep very distracted, but we'll never know who we are, or more importantly, the salvation that God has given us until we're alone before him and he starts to humble us because that's what God does in Jonah's life. He does not bring him high but he brings him low and that's the third point there. Jonah is drowning and the feeling of drowning is a terrible feeling, is it not? In fact, this whole scene that we see in chapter 2, um, uh, many Christian writers believe is a trial scene. Here Jonah is on trial. And you might say, well, it doesn't look like a trial scene. There's no jury, there's no judge, there's no court. But what you need to understand is that back in the ancient world, and we've got kind of texts from around this time that confirm this, is that if you were convicted of a crime, you wouldn't necessarily be brought before a court with a judge, a jury. What happened more often than not was that you were taken down to the river and that you were chucked in that river and fate took its course. If you were guilty, well, you'd die. And so you'd receive your punishment. And if you managed to scramble your way out of that river, then you must be innocent. What we have here is a trial scene, but clearly Jonah is not innocent. Jonah is guilty. And it's not his own ability to scramble himself, to swim his way out that rescues him. It is God and God alone that rescues him. Now, uh, obviously, we don't do that these days. I don't recommend it as a form of parenting, kind of discipline approach, um, tempting as it may be. But you have, if you have a look in verses 3 and 4, you'll see where Jonah is because verse 3, he's hurled into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swell around him. And interestingly, it's all your waves and breakers swept over me. You see... Jonah does not see the events that he is caught up in as somehow detached from his actions and from God, just Mother Nature caught in fate. 
He sees the storm. He sees the fish as the very intervention of God. And he knows in it, verse 4, that he has been banished. See, the question is, as someone is thrown into the water, it's sink or swim. And for Jonah, as he's thrown into that water, he's not swimming. He's sinking. And it's like there's lead sinkers that are pulling him down. That's the sense we get there in verse 5. The engulfing waves threaten him. It's like the waves are pushing him down. The deep surrounded me, seaweed wrapped around my head. It's like, it's like nature is conspiring to pull him down deeper and deeper. He goes, and he's down, verse 6, at the roots of the mountains. The earth beneath me, beneath barred me in forever. It's like he's reached the very depth, imprisoned, barred, because he knows he's guilty. He's drowning in the reality of who he is and what he's done in rejecting and rebelling against God. He knows that he can't be in God's presence, verse 4. I am driven away or banished from your sight. Do you know what that's like? To feel so overwhelmed, so burdened, so pushed down and held down by guilt, by the reality of not just what you've done, but what you've done again and again and again and then how that creates a picture of who you are. I think many of us know this. I don't think you have to be Christian to know the burden of guilt. And so in a lot of discussion in our modern world when it comes to guilt, we don't know what to do about it, so we've said that guilt is bad. And we need to rid ourselves from any form of guilt. No doubt Jonah wanted to be rid from the guilt. But the reality is is that we, as much as we pretend, as much as we want to construct a way of thinking where guilt doesn't exist, it does. And we can't escape it. And it only pushes us down further. See, what we need is what Jonah received. We need the radical intervention of God. We need to be released from the very depths of who we are. We read at the start of our service from Ephesians chapter 2, which speaks about us being trapped, imprisoned, in fact, imprisoned in death, dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible says that sin has so held us down. We are barred, imprisoned by sin. And yet in the middle of his guilt, Jonah says there, uh, he looks again toward your holy temple. Now the NIV reads... um, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. But I think, um, and many scholars point this out, 
Um, but he doesn't say yet. But he's actually asking a question, how? How will I look to your holy temple? You see, Jonah is burdened. And he's burdened by his guilt. And when he thinks about his guilt, he thinks about the holiness of God. How is it that he, a prophet of God, can disobey God so obviously? This is the verdict of condemnation that stands over Jonah. And it's a verdict of condemnation that stands over him because Jonah hasn't just run from God, he's run from a holy God. He's run from God's mission. We heard in our second reading that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. See, often when we experience hardship in life, it's actually God at work in our lives. It's God's wake-up call to our rebellion, as painful as that is in the moment. God often will isolate us and he'll bring us to a place where we feel like we are drowning under the weight of our sin. But he does this out of his love. And so we need to remember as Christian people, if we are in that place, if we are in the place of feeling so overwhelmed by our guilt, that because of the mercy of God, is a good place to be. Because then we start to begin to see our need. Our need for God. And here is a beautiful thing about the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just God we need. It's the mercy of God that we need. And in the Lord Jesus, that mercy is on offer. It is in abundance. It is boundless. It is bottomless. You see, often when we feel so burdened by our guilt, we, so, we feel so distant from God. I think, actually, sometimes that can be the very moment where we can be brought very close to the presence of God because then, then, when we know our need and when we know his forgiveness, we realise what God really has done for us in the Lord Jesus. It's the only qualification to come before God is to know that we are guilty and to know that we need him. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Because the poor in spirit are desperate for God. They're crying out for him. They need him. They know they need him and they know only he has what they need. Forgiveness. So that's why in verse 7 he says, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. See, Jonah remembers. He remembers God's mercy. He remembers his grace. And he looks to his temple. The temple where the sacrifices were brought before the altar for his sin, for the people's sin, those sacrifices which one day will be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've seen that movie Born Identity. In the movie Born Identity, uh, Jason Bourne 
he's, um, he's on the run, as he is pretty well in all those movies. But uh, I think it's in the first one, Marie, he meets, and he, he realises the bad guys are after him, and so he gives Marie some money. And he sends her away because he knows that he is under threat. And he says to her, get low and stay low. Get low and stay low. And in many ways, I think that's the key to the Christian life, isn't it? Get low and stay low. To be humbled by the mercy of God, to be brought low, to be burdened and to be guilty and yet to find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. That is the key to the Christian life. What are the effects of this restoration? Uh, The effects uh, are threefold. Firstly, it's to pray. Um, And I won't go into that too much now, but you can see that uh, one of the results of being brought low is for Jonah to cry out in desperation. You can see there under point B that there are two realisations that Jonah makes. The first one is that he has been clinging to empty things. We read it in verse 8 that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. See, Jonah had forfeited the grace. It wasn't just the Ninevites who were those who were worshipping worthless idols but it was Jonah, Jonah as well. And finally, we see the second realisation that Jonah is brought into is that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the sum and the substance of the whole of what happens in the book of Jonah, but indeed is the sum and the substance of really the whole Bible there in verse 9. That salvation, that rescue, the rescue that Jonah received, the rescue that we received in the Lord Jesus belongs to God. That he is the one who saves. That we don't qualify ourselves, we're just weighed down. And he comes in the middle of our guilt. He comes in the middle of our rebellion and he rescues us. A rescue that he accomplishes a rescue that he applies. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, Jonah should have known this. He was a prophet. He knew it, but he didn't know it. He needed to experience the depth of his sin and the mercy of God. And so for us, we need to experience it. We know it, that salvation is of the Lord, but we need to experience the reality of his rescue for us in the Lord Jesus, such that we might sing a song of thanksgiving to our God. Amen.